This is Creative to Creative. Together, we deep dive into the creative and production processes of leading creatives, finding out what makes them tick, how they do what they do, and the challenges along the way. This is Creative to Creative, powered by Motion by Design. This week on Creative to Creative, we interview Shay Lord, a freelance motion designer based in Chicago and creator of the Freelance Operating System, a newsletter and online course for pricing your work and growing your motion business. So welcome, Shay, to the show. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Um, I am a freelance motion designer and I pretty much work as a generalist with Uh, businesses, agencies, and studios, pretty much whoever comes my way. And as a generalist, that means that my work can span across all sorts of different things. Uh, Mostly 2D, a little bit of 3D. I'm doing some 3D stuff right now. Yeah, and just kind of exploring that and also trying to become a bigger part of the community, you know, on LinkedIn and getting to know more people that way. So whereabouts are you located in the world? I'm based in Chicago now, but I just moved here uh, almost two years ago. So I am from Atlanta. I still feel very much attached to Atlanta and uh, still kind of figuring my way out around Chicago, which is, if you're not familiar, the northern part of the states versus the southern part of the states. So it's very different weather. Like it's snowing right now (laughs) and it's like in the 80s in Atlanta. It's, It's a lot warmer in Atlanta. So. So how are you going building networks as a freelancer in a, in a new state? And especially when it's so cold that you don't want to go outside, like how do you build networks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one goes outside whenever it's snowing here. So Chicago luckily has just like a huge motion scene and they have uh, several uh, Slack groups and Facebook groups that do meetups. Um, they have Motion Chicago or Mochi. Uh, they have a Chicago C4D group. Um, there's a women's group here as well. That's pretty awesome. And so I, I don't remember how I got pulled into one of the slacks. Um, actually, I think John Filipkowski pulled me into the slacks, uh, but he got me into one group and then I just tumbled into all the other groups from there. And they also, they put on half res, which is a one day conference here that it's relatively popular. Went to that last year as a blast and kind of got to meet everyone all at once, but that was in the summertime. <laughs> so in the winter, not, not much going on, but um, yeah, so I'm just, I'm lucky that it's been really active here. And then versus Atlanta, there's a smaller group there, but you know, if you're in a smaller town, if the way it was in Atlanta is just like one guy started a group, started Slack, started doing meetups, and it really snowballs, and I think people need that. So, I mean, if anyone is in an area that doesn't have that sort of thing, it's absolutely ripe for just starting it on your own. That's that's how all of these things start, just one person trying to figure it out. And I'm really grateful for all of that. We don't have anything here in Adelaide, so to speak. Well, not a lot. Um, we're pretty much it. So um, <laughs> I feel that motion design especially is not something, and animation is not something that's put on a pedestal probably as much as some other countries and uh, locations, I think um, it's sort of something they sort of glaze over a little bit in terms of design or video production. They're just like, oh, now we can do three weeks of animation and see where that goes. So <laughs> do, do you see that? Like how come there's such a, I guess, a group of motion designers or animators in Chicago? 
it does feel like we're kind of the like ugly stepchild sometimes of like cinema and the film industry. Why did it start in Chicago? I don't know. There are several larger, uh, more well-known studios here, such as uh, The Mill and Swarovski come to mind. Um, I know that they came up, I think, at around the same time. Not that our industry is that old to begin with, but um, it created, you know, a little bit of a talent hub, I think. And because of that, it just sort of grew and kind of snowballed. So it's got a really great community. And, you know, Atlanta, since I can kind of see have perspective on two different sides of the coin here um, has been growing a lot in terms of film production. Uh, the state of Georgia created some tax cuts that way film crews could make movies there for a lot cheaper. So basically there's just a, been an explosion of film sets and film production there, which has kind of bled into more motion design, um, more visual effects that sort of thing. So it's still growing and it's still definitely blowing up there. There's just more uh, established in Chicago already. I did. I, I know that the Oscars, I think, were they just happened. I'm not sure. I didn't watch them. But the anima animation categories are always a little uh, feeling a little salty, I think, about not getting the, uh, the recognition that I would agree that they deserve. Um, so I know that I know that I can feel that way. Like we're sort of just uh, skipped over. I mean, even in the States, I feel like what you said about where you are, it's kind of the same here. So do you feel that um, like for you, the the cinema movie area is more of an appealing, I guess, pull rather than advertising and corporate video production? I think it's more glamorous from the outside. I mean, so for example, I had an opportunity um, last winter to do randomly like a visual effects project. So I got pulled into a VFX pipeline and I got to do a shot for a, an HBO show. One shot. And I was such a small, five tiny, seconds. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Probably about five, five or 10 seconds. I'm not sure. And I still don't know if it's in the, the show cause it hasn't been released yet. And I know when I got in there, there had already been 54 shots made of this shot 54 versions and they just didn't like any of them so i don't know what they expected me to do but i gave it a shot they they seemed to like it anyway it was such a tiny thing i barely did anything in this whole series or whatever um but you know when i told my parents that was like the most thrilled they've ever been <laughs> about anything that i've done because they think it's so cool versus you know all the other things that i do that are for ads uh kind of the prestige seems to only come from like who the brand is to everybody else, you know? Mm. So there's definitely more glamour, I think, with the film industry, but also the working conditions are just totally different. It's a very different lifestyle. And I came from a film background, so I went to school for film and television, did some time on sets, um, did some time doing more video production work after that on in-house teams, and then just fell into motion design for a lot of reasons, uh, or for one of the main reasons being that just is a better lifestyle for me and for what I want. Um, and it was a little bit more lucrative for what I could do as a solo person, you know? I could sit in my basement like this and just uh, make what I need to make. <laughs> I started out in something similar, like video production background, news, adver advertising, and then 
somehow got drawn into the motion design world very quickly. Um, probably because I liked it, but also I was good at it. And I think there just wasn't many people good at it. So it sort of became a point of difference very quickly. That definitely happened in terms of like when I was an editor, as soon as I was able to start putting some motion graphics into my editing work, even if it was just as simple as lower thirds, suddenly it's like I turned to gold for my employers. And that's why I just kept going in that direction. It just be- kept being what was in demand. So tell us a bit about the lifestyle that you've created for yourself as a freelancer versus working for someone. Well, the lifestyle has definitely evolved over the past six or seven years that I've been freelancing because in the beginning it was pretty much just hustle and, you know, overworking myself, stressing about finding clients and trying to also learn on the job. So not necessarily something that I would recommend, but also for a lot of people, just part of the growing pains. If you don't start uh, in a studio or an agency environment, and I did jump just straight from editing into kind of accidentally being a motion designer. So today, luckily, I've managed to find a little bit more balance. And day to day is it totally depends on my clients, I guess. But in terms of lifestyle, I can pretty much just be here at home, you know, in my home studio, which is currently in my basement. I work here flexibly. I take the hours that I need to get the project done and that's it. So, you know, I was able to these past three weeks, I had family in town for literally like three weeks. We had family and friends in and out the door. And so I managed to basically be able to work, I guess, like maybe 20 hours a week, maybe even less for that time. And as soon as they were gone, I was able to scale back up pretty quickly. So it's just, you know, for me, that kind of flexibility but especially while like right now my wife is in school, she's getting her master's degree, going back for all of that. And that flexibility for me to be able to be at home and just manage the rest of our lives while she's gone somewhere else is really fantastic. So I feel like freelancers is a bit of a flavor of the, the year type thing. It's been people are often saying how easy it is, how easy it is to make money on the side or go off and do your own thing. Um, You did touch a little bit there on potentially it can be a lot more difficult and potentially, you know, you work more hours maybe at the start at the very least than than working for someone. Tell us a bit about some of your experience jumping from full-time into freelance world and, and how you dealt with them. So whenever I made the jump, I was actually trying to get a full-time job as an editor and went through several rounds of interviews with this one company that I really liked or it's like a studio. Um, and after like four interviews, it just kind of fell through. Like they ended up going with somebody else for whatever reasons. Um, but the team still wanted to work with me. Uh, so basically they asked me if I would be willing to do it as a contractor. Um, and I said, yeah, cause I needed to work. <laughs> so I ended up just being a contractor for them uh, and ended up being very flexible Luckily, they had a good amount of work for me. And so that kind of just kicked off me trying to keep it going um, and finding my own clients. And I think like I was just saying, I was doing video editing, but also kept getting asked to incorporate more and more animation and motion design and graphics into it. Or those situations would occur where they want to make a video, but they don't have any footage or maybe they only have photos or they have a PowerPoint, but, you know, they don't actually want to give a presentation. So let's see what we can do with animation there. So it was a lot of learning on the job. 
And I mean, when I started, I had no idea, like the, the foundations, the 12 principles of animation. I had no idea what any of those were. Um, it took me a while to figure out what the graph editor was. I didn't even know it existed. Uh, so I was making some pretty bad stuff. <laughs> it was um, a lot of like getting into templates and stuff and trying to just figure out what other people had done. Yeah, so it was just a long learning process. And I think that all of that work could have been a lot easier for me and a lot less time consuming, maybe if I'd had some sort of mentorship or more clear path to understand what I was doing. Um, because I think that you can do a lot of easy work that is scalable and make a good living off of that sort of thing if you're doing, if you're in that a kind of niche that allows that, such as like corporate internal videos. Uh, sometimes paid ads, you know, it just depends on if you can position yourself for that. But if you have a more artistic itch, then that's might not be satisfying for you in the long term. And, you know, I think most motion designers, we always like to push ourselves. We always like to see what's out there, what's new, uh, the, the trendy things that are going on, like, you know, gradients are like real hot right now and glows and that sort of thing. So we all like to dig into that a new software. So for me, that was part of it too, is I would get a new project and I probably could have just been easier on myself, but I tend to uh, push my own scope a little too far sometimes. So that's been part of the balance as well as just learning how to kind of rein it in and just give the client what they need for the budget and manage my own time that way. So where did you learn how to animate? Was it mostly on the fly or... Yeah. Um, so I first opened After Effects like in high school, learning uh, Andrew Kramer's, you know, all of his video copilot yeah. tutorials and um, making really, really bad videos with my friends. Um, so I had a little bit of familiarity with the UI going into college. College, again, film and television, we didn't really touch After Effects, but every once in a while I'd be able to jump in. So I was learning just Andrew Kramer, YouTube, just stuff on the fly. But I remember... I had a uh, color theory class with a final assignment um, that was open-ended and it was literally like, do whatever you want for this assignment. Just, you know, we'll talk about the color at the end of it. And kinetic typography was like really big at the time. Uh, and I was just really blown away by it. So I tried to make a kinetic type video to um, some like rap song. And so it was like all these words and they're flying around. It was really horrible. I remember I spent, I, I didn't sleep for like two days trying to get this done. And I maybe got 15 seconds of animation done, went into class, showed my 15 seconds that were probably barely legible. Um, it's totally exhausted. And I remember my teacher asking like, okay, so you know, what did you learn from this assignment? Like, what did you take away from it? And I told my whole class that I figured out that I never want to be an animator. <laughs> said it was miserable. <laughs> And I was pretty turned off of After Effects after that, but it just kept coming into my work. And yeah, I guess over time, I eventually got over that hump of the learning curve, you know, and trying to figure it out. I felt a lot of memories. Yeah, it was all just kind of on the fly. I felt a lot of memories flash into my mind as you were talking through that journey, like Andrew Kramer, like I remember watching all of his stuff because there was pretty much nothing around apart from that. So, you know, you learn tracking and visual effects from him from his online videos and then the graph editor for me, like that was one of the the early things I discovered that 
in my mind, I think makes you a much better animator. You can instantly tell a junior versus a sort of experienced animator by looking at the animation and the movement and feeling weight um, using the graph editor. Um, there's so many more, I think, available tutorials and, and courses online now for people starting out, which is fantastic. So have you thought about scaling your business at all? Obviously, you've reached a point where you're getting quite a bit of work and, you know, ha- has the thought of, you know, scaling crossed your mind, whether it's employing people, trying different revenue revenue streams or, or scalable business practices? Yeah, uh, I got to be honest, I'm like always kind of back and forth on the idea of scaling up with more people and kind of changing my positioning to do something that's more more hands off for me. But at the same time, I also really like being doing the hands on part of it. So it's it's and I don't know if I want to be responsible for somebody else's income. (laughs) So I don't know if I'm there quite yet, but I have gone um, another route with scaling and trying to create more, quote unquote, like passive income or something that can generate more income on the side. So I've started creating courses. I've got one that's out right now, working on updating it still. And just trying to see where that takes me and see how I can help people and and what it can do for my business. So there's that aspect of it. And then I also occasionally will subcontract other people. Uh, So if I can take on more work and just need a helping hand or if I can systematize something that has that I do that's more repetitive, like paid ads, I can there are certain clients that I have systems for those paid ads and I can hand it off to a subcontractor pretty quickly. And, you know, then we both make a little bit of money from it and it's not really on my plate. So kind of exploring, kind of putting my hands in a bunch of different pods at the moment. I think the the education one's a really good one, I reckon. Um, we've, we've looked at it and that was, <clears throat> the education side was the whole reason I started Motion by Design at the start. And we just, we just lost it. Like it's, it's, it's still in the pipeline, but um, there's a, so much effort goes into making online courses. How, how long did it take you to put together a course? Oh, my God. Uh, gosh. So from when I started writing it to whenever the first version was released was two years. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, that's on and off work. But part of it, too, was I sat down and wrote, like, the first version of the course in a weekend and just like poured everything out. Um, Not the version that's out there now, but like the first draft, I should say. Um, And I was looking at it and pouring over it and then just kind of working through it over the course of several months. And I got to the point where I was about to um, record it. And I kind of realized that what I was, the advice that I put down, because this course is about like how to price your work and um, how to make sure that your freelance business is financially stable and lucrative. And I realized that I wasn't following my own advice that I had written down in the course. Uh, you know, it was, it's really easy to draw a hard line whenever you're telling other people how they should run their business. And then you look at yourself and it's like, ooh, like I might still be doing some of these bad practices. So I kind of hit the pause on it at that time and really wanted to try my best to implement it and, and stand by my own advice. And I did those things and it worked really well. I doubled my income that year and was feeling more confident about releasing it. So then I had to shoot and edit and create uh, graphics for it and implement the website. 
Well, I, actually, I had planned on doing a Skillshare originally, and I thought I was just going to like put up this 12 chapter Skillshare and kind of like bite my hands on it. And literally, as as I was like creating my account for Skillshare, I just had this thought that maybe I would try to launch it on my own first and see what happens. So instead, I moved over to Kajabi. That was recommended to me by another friend, and Kajabi's you know been really great, really easy to work as a platform pretty quick to set up. And once I set it up, I just made a post on LinkedIn and it kind of blew up like the rest is history. Um, Had a lot of interest immediately, uh, got a few shout outs that helped get the word out. And um, since then, I've just been trying to continue to support those people that have come through while also, I think, revising the course into something that uh, I think is more complete and something that I can be more proud of than the Skillshare course that I originally thought I was going to put out. So yeah, it just kind of uh, snowballed away from me. (laughs) So what are some of the top tips and advice you'd give to a freelancer starting out or wanting to improve their freelancer life? Gosh, I mean, just pricing your work appropriately is kind of what I've been harping on from the beginning. If you don't have that financial support and that financial foundation, you're going to struggle so much to just stay on top of your life while while you're trying to learn and do everything that you're trying to do. And a lot of that is, you know, there's there's the skill base. So if you're just starting out, then you have to find clients that are on the level that you can provide for uh, and slowly work your way up. Um, And if you're not starting out, but you're still struggling every week, then there's most likely either a confidence issue between like you and your clients and what you're able to ask for. Or if your clients can't support the budgets that you need, then you probably need to find new clients. I also suggest that people actually sit and and write down their financial goals, like yearly, what do you actually want to make? Divide that by 12 what does that look like on a month-to-month basis? So you have these smaller goalposts that you know that you can uh, aim for each month, even if it's weekly, even. It depends on like what kind of business you're running. But once you have those goalposts, then you can kind of reverse engineer what kind of projects could support those budgets and then what kind of clients can support those projects. So you just work your way backwards until you see like exactly what you need to do and how that aligns with the work that you like to do or the niche that you want to be in, depending. Yeah, finding those right clients in the right budget bracket um, to suit you what you're delivering can be quite difficult. And um, for us, it's been a bit of an evolving thing because, you know, we started out as one individual, which was me, and now we're seven and things change. Like once you've got seven mouths to feed, you have different client requirements and different budget requirements and um, things, yeah, things change. <laughs> Do you have any tips yeah. on finding that that client or multiple clients for someone starting out? I mean, definitely start networking. I think that we're all looking for like a magic outbound bullet where we can, you know, target a client and send them the right email or the right message, and then they become our paying client. And that is possible and it happens all the time, but it's much more difficult than getting inbound leads and just building your network and establishing yourself because there's a ton of work that's out there. There's a ton of people looking for people who do what we do. And if you just 
figure out where they're looking for you. Like for me, it, LinkedIn got me a lot of clients because people are looking out there for you. Mm-hmm. And these things change all the time. So keeping up with where people are looking or networking, depending on what your niche is. But, you know, just making sure that you're out there, easy to see, easy to contact and approachable. So that way you can have those conversations. But most people that I speak to, they're, the majority of their clients come through some sort of inbound lead. So a recommendation or a referral, someone that they know, or someone was literally searching for them and what they do. So being prepared for those. And then, you know, whenever you have, whenever you're prepared and you have your portfolio or a website or whatever it is, your case studies out there uh, and your profiles are out there, then I think it's a good idea to start working on those outbound things. So sending cold emails, if you're a freelancer, sending those cold emails to uh, studios or agencies and people that might want to work with you. Or even if you're trying to target businesses, having those conversations with business owners and just kind of following where it can lead you. We get so many of those cold emails every every day or every week. It's, it's ridiculous. I feel like that as a freelancer to stand out in, in those, in that sort of media, the email stuff is, is quite difficult. It's very difficult to grab someone's attention, get them to obviously open it without being too salesy, but also just not looking like spam. I think, I think the email is honestly a bit of a dying, a dying form for people to reach out. I reckon, I mean, gone are the days where people get on the phone or go knock on a door. I think that's super important. Um, you know, in my, my experience, we've had some of our, you know, best employees and, and people who want to work with us that actually come to the office and knock on the door and be like, hey, I'm Dom, I'm here to chat about a career in motion design or something. I think I think that's super important these days. Um, just, just because yeah. as an agency owner, like, you get so many emails, you've just got to, got to stand out from the crowd somehow. Um, on your targeting the client um, scenario, you can actually do some cool stuff on LinkedIn as well. Like if you know who you want to work for, you can make an advert just for them and then you can target companies and people who work in companies um, using some really unique creative to get some attention, which is kind of cool. It does cost a bit, but um, it might be worth it in some instance. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I did a little bit of LinkedIn advertising whenever I launched my course and I had a really hard time tracking the conversions because I thought it was I thought it was totally bombing. So I took it off after I spent, you know, a couple hundred dollars. Um, But then I started hearing from people that they found me through that LinkedIn ad. So it was just kind of uh, difficult to to track where it was, but had the same issues with Facebook as well. So that's just part of it. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, the LinkedIn outreach tools, LinkedIn uh, Navigator really awesome. I haven't used it a ton, um, but I have gone to businesses in person to check out, see like what they're doing, who they're working with, how they found that person. And then if they need anything else, uh, there's a new coffee shop on my corner here that actually I'm uh, planning to go visit soon. So that's that's definitely something that uh, um, I would recommend because I grew up doing that, just going business to business. My mom owns a, uh, a 501c3, so she created a nonprofit and was constantly fundraising. And so as kids, that was kind of part of our life as well, was just going door to door and figuring out uh, how we could work with these businesses. And my experience has been that people are always really open to it as long as you're not coming in during like a rush time, mm-hmm. you know. So you've mentioned uh, both in person and online that, you know, you encourage openness 
in terms of pay, in terms of uh, salaries and stuff to help our industry grow. Tell us a bit about why that's important to you and, and how you think that can help the industry. Yeah, so I started talking about how much I make online after one, seeing Austin Saylor do it. And that was really inspiring to me. He's talking about his project 200K and basically building in public as he is, um, you know, did reach that goal. Um, it turns out both of us had been big fans of Pat Flynn whenever he was um, doing his podcast and stuff. I'm sure he's still doing things, but however many years ago that was, maybe seven to 10 years ago, the start he started his podcast and he used to publish his um, earnings online as well. And not only is it just really it's inspiring, it shows you what's possible. Um, it kind of gives you something to aim for and, and see like kind of where you stand. And then from a motion design perspective, there are a lot of people, I think, who just assume that they're not going to or that they can't make a living doing this sort of work uh, and it might keep them out of the industry altogether. So that as well can encourage people to get out there and give it a shot because you can support your family this way and you can have a flexible lifestyle and it can work for you. Uh, and then also just talking about rates, that way we can compare rates and see where we all stand in terms of skill and what people are paying and what things are worth because we can't figure out the value otherwise. I've also had instances where I found out um, freelancers who I might even be uh, subcontracting under and like literally doing the work for them were making a lot more money than I was just because they asked for higher rates. Meanwhile, I'm actually doing the work and doing the same projects for lower rates. So, you know, if we don't talk to each other, we don't see those things and we don't see where some people might be taken advantage of. Um, and I don't think that studios are trying to do that for the most part, though occasionally I have met people who who are trying to do that. Um, so it's on us to be able to talk about these things and see, you know, from a freelance perspective, what we can charge, but also from a studio's perspective or, you know, working with directly with clients, what these projects are worth and what they're pulling and what they are making for our clients as well. So that way we can point to the results that we're getting for other people. From an agency side, like obviously I, I chat with a lot of agency owners and, and potentially freelancers can be quite difficult at times for, for a couple of reasons. But um, one of the main ones that I think agency owners tend to go go on quite heavily about is um, obviously hours, hours for time. And I think potentially... It can be quite difficult, you know, when a when a client obviously says, you know, we they want to change or something, and then that might take another four or five hours or or whatever. The agency's normally the one to sort of eat that cost up, right? Because they're paying the freelancer the hourly rate. Do you have any sort of tips on how a freelancer might potentially be able to stand out in this world, whether it's, you know, I guess quoting on the job rather than potentially an hourly basis or in your experience, have you seen something or a model that works better in the, in your instance? My experience with studios has been that they want me to provide a day rate. Um, I'm always happy to do a project rate because it's kind of set and I know exactly what to expect. And I don't know, it just provides more clarity uh, in my opinion, but i also, I understand whenever I'm going into maybe a pipeline, I'm just one person on the team, um, it might make sense for them to kind of bill out hourly depending on how things go. So 
first tip, in my opinion, is to be flexible as a freelancer, whether you're working with studios, agencies, or businesses, uh, because that is one of our greatest strengths that we have is that flexibility to work in different ways for people and to fill in those gaps as needed. Um, I tend to err on the side of just building the relationship and karma points, if you will. Um, I know that in the freelance manifesto, Joey Corman basically says the same thing, like overages happen and, you know, to a reasonable extent, I usually just, just handle it. And so it just depends on the situation. I think that there's a lot of fear and maybe even a little bit of trauma on the freelancer side of, you know, being taken advantage of and hearing the horror stories and trying really hard not to be exploited, you know, and for every like awesome, great studio out there, there's like five more that are just really trying to like leverage freelancers in a way that is maybe not ethical. (laughs) So yeah, for me, and I've been on the the bad end of some deals unfortunately but it's so rare i usually give people the benefit of the doubt i usually prioritize just building that relationship and if we can create something where we can work together and just get the job done you know that's always going to be better in my book than trying to nickel and dime a couple hours here and there but it, it also just depends it depends on the industry as well so we have a bit of a fast five. Um, it doesn't have to be super fast, so take your time. Um, some of them okay. are a bit weird and wonderful. See how you go. Do you prefer to work in a team or alone? I think I prefer to work alone. Um, so that way I don't have to explain myself <laughs> so much. And I can get all the weird stuff that's happening in here. I can just put it down and then uh, then figure it out later. But then after that, I like the team aspect. I don't know. They're both nice. If you weren't in the creative industry, what would you do? Mm, I would be a surfer and I would live on a beach and I would write mystery novels. She said, as it snows outside. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm in the wrong place, obviously. (laughs) If you're a type of cheese, what type of cheese would you be? Uh, Hmm. Uh, Probably something really basic, white, Swiss cheese, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite font? Hmm. Oh, no. I don't know if I have one. I think I would have to make up an answer to give you one for real. (laughs) (laughs) Have you chosen one for your brand? Um. Now I'm kind of between them. The ones that are on my site is, was it Unica One? I do really like it, but I'm in the middle of thinking like I'm going to rebrand everything or like redo my whole site. So I do like Unica one. I like the like the strong vertical, you know, kind of boxiness of it. But um, I think I'm leaning towards like serifs now. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, what piece of advice would you give uh, your past self or someone starting out in the industry? Hmm. Only one. Right, only one. Okay. Um, I would say relationships above all else. Just try and meet people, be good with people, you know, make good relationships and take care of each other. And then that will take you everywhere else because everything comes through referrals and just being good to work with. 
in my experience. Yeah, nice. That's a good one. That's pretty much everything. Um, if there's anything else you want to add, um, feel free. I'd love to find out maybe one more question about trends. Like, do you see any trends uh, in our industry moving forward? I feel like I'm, I think I mentioned this earlier. I feel like I'm seeing like the, those four way gradients everywhere um, and a little bit of glow everywhere. I think deep glow, uh, the deep glow plugin is getting a lot of use probably right now, getting a lot of hits. Um, I've also seen, you know, I think that the motion design industry as a whole has been like very hung up on transitions, you know, and there's a lot of things where like, okay, we're morphing or we're sliding this way or that way. Um, a tr common transition that I've been seeing a lot now is like we're tunneling through a lot of stuff. So just, you know, something opens up and we tunnel through into the next scene and tunnel through again. Um, yeah, I've been seeing that everywhere and I'm absolutely, uh, adding it to my own things too right now. <laughs> the tunneling thing is actually something we've done in the past and it's because, um, doing a seamless transition obviously requires, you know, a script block off or, you know, to retime a seamless transition. It takes hours of work. It can. So tunneling through something can be one of those transitions that's actually very simple to just sort of slide along and reposition because you often hide things in motion blur or you have a mask that sort of expands. So it's actually, from my point of view, a creation to make work a bit easier. So it's actually a, <laughs> that, nice. I think that's where it came from, yeah. I reckon. And you or can you just open up onto anything transitions. new. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's half-ass it. Yeah, exactly. I think the same <laughs> thing happened with slide transitions, you know, when you slide it and hide everything in a motion blur. Um, there Absolutely. are some very basic transitions that make it feel seamless but uh, obviously are quite easy to do. I reckon that well, was, I mean, that's probably why. I think the gradient one's interesting. I think I see a lot of gradients too and I'm, I'm hoping that we don't see a lot of like vomit-looking gradients in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we've got to be careful with those the greens and pinks bleeding a little bit much together. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, is there anything else you want to add? Is there anything you want to give a plug to? Obviously, you know, blatantly advertise your course and your website, I think would be good as well. So I write on LinkedIn every day. I post, you know, at least five times a week, every weekday, if anyone wants to find me there and see whatever is on my mind. I try to keep it very business oriented. Um, I have a newsletter that goes out every Saturday as well. That is always one growth tip for your freelance business. Um, you can read it in four minutes or less. I try to go as in depth as I can under that uh, limit there. And then I've got a pricing for motion design course. That's also you can find on my website or through LinkedIn. That is just about how to price your work appropriately for you know, whatever industry or whatever niche of the industry that you might be in and hopefully create a more financially stable and lucrative business for yourself. Love the word lucrative. <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Thanks again for your time today. Um, I think it's been, been quite good. It's good to have such a freelance, like a freelancer in such a public uh, space, putting themselves out again. there. Um, both on LinkedIn and obviously your work as well and, and creating content for other freelancers, I think is a really good thing and a really good niche in your, in your own, in your own world too. So I think, you know, you've mentioned, you know, us motion designers all need to stick together and having content for us is, is a great thing and a hub to come to for information. 
Yeah, it's funny. I feel like we've all been on LinkedIn maybe lurking for a long time. And now there are more people starting to talk about things on there and post more. So everyone's kind of just coming out of the woodwork and uh, engaging. But it's been a really great community because um, I think it's just a little bit more positive and a little bit more built towards personal development than maybe the rest of social media. Um, it feels very positive to me. I know that there's a lot of cringe out there and I try not to contribute too much of my own, but um, I it's got a, it's good vibes on LinkedIn right now. Is there anyone else you think we should invite onto the podcast that you think would be good to hear from? Yeah. Um, so Austin Saylor, I mentioned earlier, you know, awesome. he's got a lot of stuff that he's got doing that he's doing right now with um, kind of in the same vein of like helping freelancers make more money. Um, and then Alessandro Novelli um, is also kind of a little bit more active on LinkedIn and he is interesting because he does a lot of uh, what he calls authorial work. So like short films, narratives um, of his own doing. He, he's got a lot of uh, really interesting insights. I think he might be a good one to talk to. And, uh, and of course, uh, Andrew Kramer. We have to ask him that you've flagged Please. it. <laughs> Please get Andrew Kramer I wonder, on the show. <laughs> I, w- I wonder what he's up to these days. He made a post recently. I don't know if you saw. He was like, hey, I'm back. And then we didn't hear anything. I haven't heard anything else. So I don't know what he's doing. Yeah. We've got um, Jake in motion. Have have you heard of Jake in motion? We've got him. Uh, Jake Bartlett. Or the week after. Yeah. 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 So he's on. Yeah. Should be great. He's awesome. He's actually the reason I was going to do a Skillshare originally for my course because I had asked him about because he's kind of the king of Skillshare and YouTube tutorials as well. Um, And I was just asking him, this was back in 2020. I was like, is it worth someone getting into Skillshare now, you know, just starting? And he was like, absolutely do it. You know, it's blowing up. So that started this whole journey for me. (laughs) I feel like Domestica has just appeared overnight as well. Like I saw that on my feed probably a year ago and it's just just gone absolutely yeah. nuts and it's also very cheap have you seen domestica have you thought about throwing your course on domestica um well i've thought about it but i think what they do is um they actually film it with you like they are part of the production process um mm. and i think what you do is you pitch uh, a course concept to them and then they help you develop the course and put it on there um yeah i've thought about it because they look really nice and i would love to have someone take care of all the marketing and stuff for me because it's a pain but also obviously it's uh, a little bit you get to keep the money if you do it all yourself so that's why I decided to try Kajabi before I did Skillshare before something like Domestica and who if it becomes too much then yeah I'll probably just throw my stuff onto one of those but for now it's fine just being independent I guess I think um, Instagram and Facebook would be the best spots to advertise your courses. Um, we find that um, we find that um, our social media is just abundant of motion designers and graphic designers and people wanting to freelance. Like, I think that's the one trap in our world. Like, you post good work and then you post client work, but then you get other people in the same industry as you follow you because it's like, oh, that looks pretty. Um, which <laughs> is a bit of a trap, but I think. Um, they're all sitting on there, you know, just wanting more content, 
Um, LinkedIn is is super expensive targeting. Um, so unless unless you're getting repeat customers or you know that thousand dollar purchase or two thousand dollar purchase, I wouldn't be marketing on LinkedIn personally because um, right. you're probably paying you're probably paying about eight dollars between three to eight dollars a click on LinkedIn, whereas social media might be like you know ten cents based upon your audience. But honestly, yeah. like I you, did do some. Be, Sorry, I did do some uh, Facebook and Instagram ads, uh, ran it for about four months and basically did 4x what I put into it, which was awesome. But I, like I said, I'm trying to re like trying to upgrade my course and I don't want to be advertising something that I'm not like fully standing behind yet. So Mm -hmm. I'll probably go back to it and try to make an ad that's a little less cringy and see how it goes. (laughs) That was one of the main reasons we didn't launch our course yet because it's just like it needs to be right, it needs to be good, but at some point you just got to go fuck it and just release it right. <laughs> you do. And, you know, I feel like as much as I um, feel like I, I can see all of the issues with my course, I get messages from people all the time, you know, saying thank you for putting it out there and putting it together. People tell me how they've doubled their rates, how they've started making just – they had no idea how, like – little they were charging and how much they were being taken advantage of. Um, and then also people who were just like, oh, you gave me some really great ideas, you know, for how to kind of restructure things and just have a little bit more confidence in what they were already doing. So as crummy as I feel like it is sometimes, <laughs> it's it's out there and it's, it's doing the work. So yeah, I just kind of got a launch. Cool. Thanks again for your time. Have a good night. I, I assume it's very late over there. Uh, it's like, it's almost seven. Oh, okay. Not bad. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks again. And um, you've been great. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Creative to Creative podcast. Tune in next time for some more inspiring discussions with leading creatives. And check us out on YouTube where you can see shorts and bonus material from previous and upcoming guests. This podcast brought to you by Emotion by Design.